So listen, it was in the 1930s and 40s, uh, there was a Jewish couple who lived in Queens, New York, and they were raising their three children uh, in the city, and they had high hopes for all of their children. And their son, one of their sons, they had two sons and a daughter, one of their sons uh, went on to become famous uh, really throughout the world, but certainly here in the United States. And his fame was gained primarily uh, because he rose to the highest pinnacle of success in the financial markets. Uh, He was a market maker. He was a securities investor. In 1960, he launched his own securities firm. And 30 years later, in 1990, he actually became the chairman of the NASDAQ Stock Exchange. This guy was a titan. And he was sought after by investors uh, from around the world and, in fact, had uh, thousands of clients. He very quickly, very early in life, became a millionaire and then turned those millions into billions and became a billionaire. And that wealth allowed him to live a lifestyle that, um, that most people can only dream of. He uh, had luxury oceanfront homes uh, on the coast of New York and uh, a luxury apartment in Manhattan, a luxury oceanfront home in Florida, a home in Paris, France. Uh, he was what everybody would have wanted to have been. Until December of 2008. And in that month, December of 2008, Bernie Madoff was arrested and charged with felony securities fraud. And ultimately, a few months later, he was convicted of 11 counts of securities fraud. He was sentenced to 150 years in prison. And he died in prison just six months ago here in North Carolina. Bernie Madoff had perpetrated on his clients the largest Ponzi scheme in the history of the United States. And in doing so, he had built his investors out of nearly $20 billion. It's amazing. Bernie Madoff was not what he appeared to be. In fact, we would all agree, Bernie Madoff had no integrity, none at all. So let me welcome you into the fourth week where you and I are learning about the life of Joseph. And specifically, in these weeks together, we're talking about learning how to trust God like Joseph trusted God. And we've been talking about some really important Uh, life environments where we need to learn to trust God. We talked about trusting God with our future. The future is unknown. We can't know what will happen tomorrow. So how can I trust uh, in God for the uncertainties of my future? We talked about trusting God with our families because all of us know that family is not perfect. Families are made up of broken people. So in every family, there is some measure of strange stress, even downright dysfunction or brokenness. So how can I trust God with my family? We talked about that. Last week, we talked about trusting God as we suffer because all of us will endure suffering in our lives. And how is it that I can trust God With that suffering. Today, we're talking about integrity. How can I trust God so that I can simply live a life of integrity 
and not have to lie and cheat and steal and manipulate and shade and hide? How can I just live with integrity and trust God for the outcome or the consequences of those decisions? Trusting God with my integrity. Now, I want you to write down a definition because you know that I love definitions. And while integrity is a word that all of us know, I always like to make sure that we're all thinking about these topics in the same way. So let me give you a a definition for integrity. Integrity is simply the quality of being honest. It is to have strong moral principles. Integrity uh, could be called moral uprightness. It is to be honest or to have strong moral principles or to have moral uprightness. That's integrity. And so here's my question to you. In fact, can I say it this way? If if it weren't Sunday morning, it weren't preaching time, if you and I were just talking, just having coffee, and I asked you this question, how would you answer it? Here's the question. Are you a person of integrity? Are you? Are you a man or a woman who lives with integrity. Now that's not an unimportant question, by the way. In fact, it's so important that Jesus spoke to us about the necessity of integrity in our lives in the greatest sermon that was ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, where, by the way, Jesus is teaching kingdom living principles. If you want to know what the Sermon on the Mount is about, he's essentially saying in the kingdom, this is the way we function. He's the king of the kingdom. And he's saying, this is the way that we live in the kingdom. And he spoke in that sermon about integrity. Listen to what he said, Matthew 5, 37. He said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Isn't that simple? Say what you mean, mean what you say, do what you say. And when you say yes, everybody knows it's a yes. And when you say no, everybody knows that it's a no. What Jesus is saying is live with integrity. Now, I really believe, I'm convinced that this is true, that all of us, I hope it's true of every single person in the room, all of us want to be a man or a woman of integrity. We do. We we want to live with moral uprightness. We want to be honest people, and we want to have strong moral principles. But here's what I hope. I hope that we'll go beyond desire today. We'll say it's more than I just want to be a person of integrity. And I hope that we will receive from God's word his teaching about integrity. And that we will surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit within us. And to the guidance of the scriptures. So that he might, by his spirit and through his word, that he might make us men and women of integrity. We're going to learn how to do that from the life of Joseph. Because Joseph was a guy with integrity. So we're going to read about it. You follow along. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 39, uh, and I'm going to read 20 verses. Hello, are you okay with that? Can you follow along for 20 verses? I, I started to read the whole chapter, but I thought maybe you couldn't handle the whole chapter. So we're, I'm going to leave off three verses, if that helps. But I'm still going to preach them. I'm just not going to read them right now, all right? Genesis 39 and verse 1, you follow along as I read. It says, and Joseph was brought down to Egypt to Potiphar, who was an officer of Pharaoh. He was uh, the captain of the guard. He was an Egyptian. And he bought Joseph off the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down there. 
And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master, Potiphar, saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him. And Potiphar made Joseph the overseer of his house. He made him the overseer, the chief steward of all that he had. He put it into Joseph's hand. Verse 5, And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house. He blessed Potiphar's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that Potiphar had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. He knew nothing about what he had. He had no concern about his possessions. Only, the only thing he worried about, verse 6 says, was the bread which he did eat. Now, verse 6, after talking about Joseph's integrity and his advancement in Potiphar's uh, house, verse 6 ends in a little bit of a strange way. It turns and says, by the way, Joseph was a goodly, the King James says, a goodly person and well-favored. It means that Joseph was good-looking and well-built. He was a fine-looking young man. Verse 7, and it came to pass after these things that Potiphar's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said to him, lie with me, come to bed with me. Not so subtle, wouldn't you agree? Come to bed with me. But he refused, and he said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master does not know what is with me. He has no concern about what he has with me in this house. He has committed all things into my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, and neither has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And it came to pass that as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he would not listen to her, he would not lie with her, he would not even be near her, be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his work and there was no one in the house, no men of the house were there. And she caught him by his garment and she said, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and he fled, he ran out of the house. Well, it came to pass when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth that she called unto the men of her house and she spake unto them, saying, See, Potiphar has brought in a Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to try to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And it came to pass that when he heard that I was lifting my voice and crying out, then he left his coat here with me and he fled and he ran out. And she laid up his garment by her side until Potiphar came home. And she spake unto Potiphar according to the same words, saying, The Hebrew servant which you have brought unto us came in unto me to mock me. And it came to pass when I lifted up my voice and I cried that he left his garment with me and he ran out of the house. And it came to pass when Potiphar heard these words, the words of his wife, which she spake unto him, saying, After this manner your servant did to me. Then his wrath was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, into the place where the king's prisoners were bound. And he was there 
in the prison. Now, let me help us just a bit before we dig into the specifics of the text, and let's do a little bit of research to discover the timeline of these events in Joseph's life. If you'll turn back one page to Genesis 37 and verse number one, you'll remember that when Joseph is introduced to us in chapter 37, he is his father's favorite son and he is 17 years old. And immediately following his introduction in chapter 37, verse number two, his brothers are sent to Shechem to, to uh, tend to the sheep. Joseph is uh, sent to check on his brothers. They grab him, throw him in the pit. We learned about that last week. And ultimately sell him as a slave to the Ishmaelites. All of that happens when Joseph is 17 years old. So we know that Joseph arrives in Egypt in chapter 39, verse 1, at the age of 17. Now, maybe he's 18, but certainly no older than that. Um, he's a about 17 or 18 years old when he gets to Egypt. Now, if you'll turn forward one page to chapter 40 and verse 46, you'll get another important timestamp in the life of, of Joseph. It's in, in chapter 41, verse 46, which says Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So you can quickly do the math between the age of 17 when he arrives in Egypt and the age of 30 when he's promoted to Pharaoh's court, there are 13 years that pass. But we also know that Joseph was put in prison and that he spent at least two years in prison. Look at chapter 41 and verse number 1. Chapter 41 verse 1 says, And it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh dreamed a dream uh, and behold, he stood by a river, and this is when Joseph is taken up to, to uh, stand in Pharaoh's court. So he's in prison at least two years. He's actually there a little over two years. Chapter number 40 and 41 makes clear. And so he's, he's there, let's say, somewhere between two and three years. Now do the math. If he's in Egypt from the time he arrives until he becomes vice regent of Egypt for 13 years, and two to three of those years he spends in prison. That means that Joseph spends about 10 years, maybe 11, but 10 or 11 years serving in the house of Potiphar. Now that's an important thing for us to know because sometimes we read through a text like we just did and we think all these things happen immediately, one, one right after another, just very quickly. And, and in fact, it didn't happen that way. The events we read in chapter 39 cover a decade. 10 years of Joseph's life serving in the house of Potiphar. It also helps us to know that when Mrs. Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, tried to seduce Joseph, that Joseph would have been a 27 or 28-year-old young man. All right? So 10 years Joseph spent serving in Pot, uh, Potiphar's house. Now, we know that during those years, and we know this from the text, that during those years, Joseph lived with integrity. And I want you to write that down. Joseph was a man of integrity as he served in Potiphar's house. Remember, integrity is the quality of being honest. To have integrity is to be a person who has strong, uh, a strong moral compass, to, to be a person of integrity is to be a person of moral uprightness. And what the Bible tells us in this text is that during all of these 10 years in Potiphar's house, Joseph was that. He was a man of integrity. 
I should also tell you that Joseph was one of many people in the Bible that had integrity. The word integrity or various translations of the word are found over a hundred times in the Bible, mostly in the Old Testament, where they describe for us men who lived their lives with integrity. And most often, those words in the, in the Bible that are translated integrity are also translated with the word upright, to be upright, or to have uprightness, or to walk uprightly. When you read it in the Old Testament, the original Hebrew word that's translated upright is the word yosher, and it means to be straight or to be even or level. Or if you're a builder, if you might think of a plumb line, something being plumb and square, the idea of being upright in the Hebrew language is someone that's living straight. They're square. They're, they're on the level. That's integrity in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, the, the Greek word that's translated upright or uprightly in the New Testament is a really interesting word. It's actually a combination of two words. Listen to this word. It's orthopodeo. So immediately you might think, well, ortho, we, we get our word orthopedic from that, which means to straighten or to be straight. And podeo is, if you've been to a podiatrist or the, the medicine of podiatry, it's your feet. So the word orthopodeo means to be, y'all listening? Straight-footed. Isn't that a great definition? Straight-footed. It, it means that a person with integrity is straight-footed. They walk straight. It's a person who lives in a straight way. A person with integrity is someone who walks straightly. Now, you and I should pray that God would make us straight-footed, shouldn't we? We should say, oh Lord, I want to be a person who walks straightly. Do you know that David prayed that prayer? In Psalm 25, in verse number 21, a Psalm of David, here's David's prayer. May integrity and uprightness, there's that word you'll share, may integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. And when David says, I wait for you, the word means my hope is in you. I'm hoping, my only hope of having integrity and uprightness, my only hope of walking straight, Lord, is you, your grace and your power and your spirit within me. So David prayed that he would be a man of integrity. And in fact, God said that David was a man of integrity. After he died, God spoke of David as being a man of integrity. Let me read to you. You don't have to turn. 1 Kings 9, verse number 3, God is speaking to Solomon. And God says to Solomon, David's son, And the Lord said unto him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have hallowed this house which you have built. I have put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And if you, Solomon, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, then I will keep you on the throne. Now, David prayed for integrity. After David died, God said he had integrity. But can we talk? 
I know some things about David that weren't very straight-footed living, don't you? I, I know some things about David's life where he, he was not demonstrating uprightness and integrity and straight walking. Yet God called him a man of integrity. Here's the principle. I want you to listen to me very carefully. We should understand that to live with integrity is a pursuit where we repent often because we fail. To live with integrity is not to have a perfect life where we're consumed with pride because we never fail. The reason God looked at David, who we know failed so many times and in so many ways, and said he's a man of integrity is because God is not looking for perfection in his people. By the way, is anybody glad God's not looking for perfection in his people? Will you shout amen? Because we're not that. God's not looking for perfection. He's looking for people who desire to be righteous and, and have integrity and who repent quickly when we fail. And if David was anything, he was a man who knew how to repent. He wouldn't hide his sin. He wouldn't cover it up. He wouldn't run from it. He would be honest with God. We should be men and women who pray for integrity and who repent quickly when we fail. Well, Joseph was that kind of guy. He was a straight walking man. And you should know, in fact, I hope you'll write this down in your notes, Potiphar noticed Joseph's integrity. He did. He saw something different about this young man, Joseph. Now look at what chapter 39 verse 1 tells us about Potiphar. It says a couple of things. One, it says that Potiphar was an officer of Pharaoh. That means that he's a high-ranking official in the government of Egypt. No small potatoes. Potiphar is a highly influential, power-wielding man. It goes on to tell us in chapter 39 and verse number 1 that he is the captain of the guard. That could mean two things. It might mean that he is the captain of Pharaoh's uh, secret service, if you will, the guards that protected Pharaoh. That might be what he was. Most people believe, though, that the word here means that he was the captain of Pharaoh's executioners, that he carried out the execution of people who were dying at the command of Pharaoh. In either case, he is a highly influential, power-wielding, military man. No soft cookie is Potiphar. Now, the third thing you need to know about Potiphar is that his name means he who is devoted to the sun god. The Egyptians worshipped a multiplicity of gods, and Potiphar was, a, was especially devoted to the deity of the sun god of the Egyptians. He was a high-ranking, hard-nosed, military chief of the executioners who was a pagan who worshipped a, the deity of the sun. Suffice it to say, Joseph didn't go to work every day in a nice Christian environment. Amen? Potiphar's employees were not having devotions over lunch and carrying their Bible with them to church. He was going to work every day in a hostile environment. And maybe you'd do the same thing. Maybe you go to work every day in a place where nobody knows God and nobody has a respect or an honor for the things of God. 
Well, Joseph went to work in that environment, and he lived in such a way that the Bible says in verse number two, the Lord was with him. But more importantly, in verse number three, it says that his master, Potiphar, saw that the Lord was with him. He saw that the Lord made everything that Joseph did to prosper. Potiphar noticed. I wonder what he noticed. I mean, what was it that he saw in Joseph that caused him to go, what is it about that kid? And when the text says in verse number three that Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him, which God did he think was with him? Because Potiphar believed in many gods. So which God did he think Joseph was walking with? It prompts my my, uh, mind to wonder Had Potiphar and Joseph had conversations? Remember, he'd been there 10 years. He's learned the Egyptian language. He's he's now in the confidence of Potiphar. Potiphar trusts him completely. And I wonder if there were days when Potiphar said, Joseph, tell me your story. Man, you, you showed up here 17 as a slave. Where do you come from? Tell me about your family. And maybe... Joseph told him about the Hebrew people and he told him about Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and the God of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. And maybe Potiphar was beginning to come to believe in this God of Joseph. He saw that the Lord was with him. Maybe it was his work ethic that Joseph just worked as a, as a man all to work. He wasn't cutting corners. He wasn't lazying around. He was a hard worker. Maybe, maybe it was his honesty that Potiphar was struck by the integrity of this young man, that he always did what he said he would do. He kept his word and he could be trusted with uh, Potiphar's possessions. Maybe it was his attitude. He just always kept a, a, a good attitude. I don't know what it was. Probably it was all of those things. But because he saw these things in Joseph, he saw the integrity of Joseph, he knew that the Lord was with him. Do you know what Jesus said about this again in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 16. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men. Let your light so shine in the house of your Potiphar. Let your light so shine. Walk so straightly. Live with such integrity on the job site. In the marketplace. Dealing with your salespeople, counting the money at the bank, in the OR at the hospital, on the university campus, in the high school classroom. Let your light so shine before those people that they will see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Do you know what? When we live with integrity, people notice. And Potiphar noticed Joseph. The second thing that I want you to notice about Joseph is that Joseph advanced. The text is clear. Joseph was promoted because of his integrity. I remember, over 10 years, he paid his dues. He did the faithful job. He was a good employee. He was a trustworthy uh, employee. And so he was promoted. Verse number two says that he prospered in Potiphar's house. Verse number four says that he was promoted to the overseer in Potiphar's house, the chief steward in Potiphar's house. And verse number six says that ultimately Potiphar entrusted everything that he had to Joseph. Everything. All of his bank accounts, all of his possessions, all of his lands, all of his dealings. 
everything was ultimately entrusted to Joseph, so much so that Potiphar didn't even know what he had. Joseph knew what he had. All that Potiphar concerned himself with was the bread that he was eating. Because of his integrity, he was promoted in Potiphar's house. Now, there's another thing I want to show you about Joseph's integrity and how it blessed those around him. It's an intriguing thing to me. I want you to write it down. It is that Joseph's integrity brought blessing on others. I'm so intrigued by this. Joseph's integrity brought blessing on others. Look at verse 5 of chapter 39. It came to pass at that time, at the time that Potiphar had made Joseph the overseer of his house and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed Potiphar's house for Joseph's sake. I'm intrigued by that. And that the blessing of God on Potiphar because of Joseph and his integrity extended to Potiphar's house and it extended to all of his fields, his lands, to all of his possessions. It's an incredible verse. It's an incredible statement that the God of heaven blessed a pagan Egyptian sun worshiper because of the presence of a devoted Hebrew boy named Joseph who was in Potiphar's house. Can I say a word to you? Can I speak to the husbands in the room for just a second? Ladies, you can tune me out for just a second. Can I speak to the husbands and the fathers in this room? Hear me this morning. More importantly, hear the word of God. You Husband, you father, you be the reason for the blessing of God coming to your family. Don't you be the reason your family collapses. Don't you be the reason your family disintegrates or your family is broken. You be the reason. You walk in such a way, husband and father and and, uh, husband and dad, you walk in such a way that the blessing of God so flows in your life that it just washes out over your family. God will bless your family for your sake. Moms, wives, same way. You let the blessing of God be apparent in your husband's life and the blessing of God. You let your children go to bed in their beds at night with security and knowing they're loved and knowing their home is secure because mom walks with integrity and dad walks with integrity and the blessing of God will come to your family. Potiphar experienced blessing because of Joseph. Listen to what Psalm or Proverbs 20 and verse 7 says. It says, The righteous man walks with integrity, and his children are blessed after him. Loved ones, be men and women of integrity, and the blessings will flow to your family. Well, Joseph was a man of integrity. The second thing I want you to see in this passage about Joseph is that he faced temptation with integrity. He did. You'll see this in verses 6 through 18. He faced temptation with integrity. You know, since the serpent enticed Eve in the garden and she and Adam sinned, since that very moment, you and I have lived in a world filled with offers to sin and opportunities to sin and temptations of every sort around every corner. And such was Joseph's life. Look at what the Bible says about Joseph in verse 6. I mentioned it already, how that verse 6 frames part of the reason that Joseph was tempted. It says in verse number 6 that he was a good-looking, well-favored, strong, handsome, well-built 
young man of 27 or 28 years old. Verse number seven says that Potiphar's wife cast her eyes upon him. Potiphar wasn't the only one noticing Joseph, amen. She noticed him. She saw his good looks, and with all the subtlety of a sledgehammer, she said, come to bed with me. Come sleep with me. The Bible says that she tempted him in that regard. He said no. Verse number 10 says that she didn't give up after the first invitation. It says that she tempted him like this. She spoke to him. She invited him into her bedroom day after day. Now this went on and it went on and it went on and it went on. And I'm convinced that not only did she speak to him with this invitation, she also, I'm certain, enticed him with her various stages of undress in his presence, luring him into her bedroom. So much so that verse number 10 says he would not give in to go to bed with her. He would not even be around her. He stopped, he he began to distance himself from her. By the way, very good advice, stay away from the temptation. So he, he moved, he, he, um, you know, I don't know if he moved his office or, or set up the times he was going. He did something to not be around her. But in verse number 11, she trapped him. She set a trap for him. Verse number 11, it came to pass at that time that Joseph went into the house to do his work, which he had to do. But this time there was nobody else in the house. None of the other servants were there. She had sent them all out. She was there alone. And in verse number 12, he comes in to do his work and she grabs him, grabs this coat Grabs him by the garment, verse 12 says, and says to him, come and lie with me. And Joseph faced that temptation with integrity. Three things Joseph did to resist it. Write them down quickly. Number one, he refused. Verse eight, he refused. Verse number eight, the Bible says that she said, come lie with me. Verse seven, verse eight, he refused. The word refuse means to say no, absolutely not. It's a foot down. It's a hand on the table. No, I'm not doing it. And it is his gut reaction. It's his knee-jerk reaction. It's his immediate response to the temptation. No. Now, you know what's true of Joseph? If that was his immediate response, it was a predetermined response. He didn't wait until he was tempted to decide what he was going to do. He had already decided. He knew this woman. He knew her intentions. And he had already decided, no. Can I say to you, if y'all are listening, shout amen. amen. That ought to be your gut reaction, your immediate response to every temptation as it comes. No. Would you like, no. Hey, why don't you, no. That looks, no. Our immediate response should be, no. don't think about it. Don't, don't play it over in your mind. Don't go back and forth. What if? How would anybody know? Joseph didn't contemplate those things. He just said, No. And this should be the way that we respond to temptation, to throw up the roadblock, throw up the wall, and say no. Then, after you've said no, then reason about it. Because if you reason first, you will fail to refuse very often. Because if you think about it before you've made a decision, you will probably make the wrong decision. But if, listen, if you will refuse first and then reason, your reasoning will bolster your refusal. It'll strengthen your resolve to refuse the temptation. Listen to how he reasoned about this. Verses number eight and nine. First of all, he says, what am I being invited into? 
What is it that I'm being offered here? Well, verse number nine, we, we know he was being invited to her bed. Let me tell you what he called it. He didn't call it her bed. In verse number nine, he called it great wickedness and sin. So what I need to do is say no and then step back and say, that's great wickedness, that's sin. My no is the right answer. The second thing that he asked is, who would I be sinning against? If I did this, who am I, who am I violating? Well, he's violating Potiphar. He, he says, my master, no, he's, he's entrusted everything to me. He, I, I can have anything I want in this house except you. Why would I violate my master's trust? And the third thing he says is, I wouldn't sin against God like that. Maybe Potiphar would never know. And I'll promise you that was one of Mrs. Potiphar's arguments. Who would know? We're the only ones here. Come on. What's it to you? It's not a big deal. And he said, Potiphar may not ever know, but God would know. And so when we understand that we should face temptation with a refusal and then reason, I'm convinced that if we would do that, if we would ask the what and the who and the why questions after we've refused the temptation, then we will be strengthening our resolve. And I really believe that many a life would be saved from, uh, from the scrap heap if people would just consider the inevitable consequences of their sin before they say yes. Well, first he refused, then he reasoned. Then he did the third thing and the wise thing, and that is he ran. He refused, he reasoned, and he ran. Verse number 12, when Mrs. Potiphar set the trap, all the people were out. He comes in to do his work. She grabs him, pulls him close, takes a hold of his coat and says, now's our chance. Come on, come to bed with me. He pulls and jerks and runs so fiercely that his coat is pulled off of him and he leaves the coat and he runs from the house. It's good advice. Hey, can I, can I say a word to you? Here's the best theological word you'll hear today. Run! <laughs> Run from sin. Run from the store. Run from the house. Run from the car. Run from the private office. Run from the computer. Run from sin. Bible says to run. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says flee sexual immorality. 1 Timothy 2.22 says flee youthful lusts. 2 Timothy 6.11 says flee from greed. Just run. Just run. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a theologian, a German theologian and pastor during the days of the Third Reich, uh, eventually was arrested and put into a concentration camp in Germany um, because of his resistance to Hitler. In fact, Bonhoeffer was hanged only weeks before that concentration camp was liberated by the Allied forces. He was a great man of God, and he wrote in his book, Temptation, just simply named Temptation, about this command to run. Listen to Bonhoeffer's words. He says, in our members, in our body, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. And all at once, a secret, smoldering fire erupts into a blaze. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge our love of fame and power, or greed for money, 
At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and the only desire, and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality, Bonhoeffer says, is the devil. And Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and the will of man in the deepest darkness. And it is here that everything within me, he writes, rises up against the word of God. Therefore, the Bible teaches us in times of temptation in the flesh, there is but one command, flee. Flee fornication, flee idolatry, run from youthful lusts, flee the lusts of the world. There is no resistance to Satan in lust other than flight. Every struggle against, one's, against lust in one's own strength is doomed to failure. Predetermined, no, understand why, reason, and then run for your life. And if you do, it'll help you to face, face temptation with integrity. Now, the third thing I want you to know, and we're going to close, lastly, is if you'll jot this down, let's talk just briefly about Joseph and his trust of God with his integrity. Joseph trusted God with his integrity. You know the rest of the story, don't you? Verse number 13, the old saying says, a scorned woman has, I won't use the word, but fury. And this woman was scorned, greatly scorned. And suddenly her desire, her lust turns into rage. And she begins to scream. He came in to try to lie with me. He assaulted me, tried to rape me. I've got his coat. I ripped his coat from him. And she held it up as evidence. By the way, it's the second time a coat of Joseph's was held up to tell a lie about him. She holds up this coat. You see, I took his coat from him when he ran. She keeps that coat close at hand until Potiphar finally comes home that evening and she tells him, that Hebrew you brought in here, he tried to rape me. I've got his coat as proof. Look at verse number 20. Joseph's master took him and put him into prison. I'm sorry, verse number 19 at the end of the verse says that when he heard this, Potiphar's wrath was kindled. He got angry. Do you find it interesting? If y'all are listening, say amen. Do you find it interesting that it just says Potiphar got mad? It doesn't say who he got mad at? I'm convinced that he didn't buy her story for a minute. Because I believe Potiphar knew who his wife was. He knew what kind of woman she was. And he knew who Joseph was. And he knew better than that about Joseph. And do you think for a minute, if the chief executioner has a young man that tries to wait, rape his wife, he's going to put the guy in jail? Or is he going to be off with his head? He's going to execute him. But he doesn't do that. She left him no choice. He had to do something, so he puts him in prison. But I'm convinced that he didn't think Joseph did this for a moment. Which, by the way, makes Joseph's imprisonment even all the more unjust and unfair. Well, surely, he is put into prison. The Bible says in verse number 20, Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound, and Joseph was there in the prison. Now, how many of you, let's be honest, how many of us would have said, great. 
Pays off serving God, doesn't it? This thing works wonderful. Walk with integrity. Do what God says. You'll end up in prison every time. That's the way it's going in my life. Doesn't pay to serve God. We would have thought that. Many of us would have. Not Joseph. Joseph maintained his integrity when he went into prison. And you know this, that the Bible says in verse number 21, the Lord was with Joseph. Chapter 40, verse number 8 tells us that Joseph didn't lose his faith. He still spoke of God and God's power. He still told people about God and his power. The Bible says in verse number 22 that he continued to serve with integrity in the prison now. It says in chapter 40 and verse number 4 that he continues to serve for for, uh, a number of months at least in that place before the butler and the baker show up. These are, we'll talk about the butler and the baker next week. Um, and then the Bible tells us that, uh, that he didn't become bitter, that he was still compassionate and cared about others. My point is this. He simply did what God wanted him to do. He walked straightly, and he trusted God with the outcome. Can I tell you? I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy. I, I do. I want to be the kind of man that just says, you know what, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. I'm gonna, I'm, by his grace, I'm going to walk straight. I, I'm going to be straight-footed. I'm going to walk with integrity. And if that means I lose something over here or I don't gain something over there, I'm just going to trust God because I'm not going to manipulate and lie and cheat and steal and shade and hide and, and shadow things to try to get what I want. I just want to walk the way God wants me to walk, and I'll trust him with those things. That should be our prayer. Bernie Madoff had no integrity. Don't be Bernie. Joseph had integrity. Let's be like Joseph.